This is KOOP HD1 HD3 Hornsby. The following was home crafted and recorded on November 11th. Welcome to the Austin Chronicle show. My name is Kim Jones and I am the editor of the Austin Chronicle, Austin's independent source of news and culture reporting since 1981. This week, we're taking a closer look at Delta 8, a THC product that's got the state of Texas battling with the burgeoning cannabis industry. Here to talk about that is reporter Morgan O'Hanlon, who wrote about Delta 8 in this week's issue of the Chronicle. Morgan, thank you so much for joining me. Hey, Kim. Glad to be here. Glad to have you. Here to unravel a topic that I think a lot of people don't really understand. So can we start there with what is Delta-8? Totally. So Delta-8 is an isomer of THC. So it's slightly different from Delta-9, which is kind of the more common chemical that is found in something like weed that gets you high. So supposedly, as somebody who only dabbles in these things, Delta-8 is not necessarily as potent as its cousin, Delta-9. Although it's developed the moniker legal weed in a lot of places, it's not necessarily going to be as strong as like weed that you could go out to a dispensary in Colorado and buy there. That said, some people say that it gets you high, but who's to say? (laughs) So where on the spectrum of legalization does... Delta 8 fall? And also sort of, who are the proponents here? Because I've heard of some sort of surprising Republicans who seem to be on the side of Delta 8. Yeah. So to get out the first part of your question there, Delta 8 is legal right now to go out and buy at whatever store, smoke shop, vape shop, gas station that is selling it right now. And that's because of an injunction that was placed on the illegality of it some people were talking about earlier this month. So although the state of Texas had argued that Delta-8 is part of the controlled substance list, which puts it along the same lines as meth, cocaine, heroin, drugs of that manner, this injunction that a judge issued only on November 5th, so a few days ago, this injunction that was placed on its status on the controlled substance list makes it legal-ish right now. Like nobody's (laughs) going to go out and arrest you for possession of it or for selling it. That said, a lot of vendors have taken it off their shelves and some people are taking a bit longer to start selling the product again. And who knows how long that injunction is going to last. We're kind of waiting around to see when the state is going to file its appeal against that injunction. That could happen any day now. It could be a few weeks. And if that happens, another judge might not be so lenient towards its interpretations of allowing Delta-8. And yeah, a lot of Republicans, not necessarily who you'd think would be supporting weed-adjacent things, have voiced their support for this thing. I mean, a big supporter of the bill that kind of allowed industrial hemp sales in Texas a few years ago was Agricultural Commissioner Sid Miller. And he's a very noted conservative. But from a business perspective, he and some other Republican friends definitely support this. You know, we should 
just sort of remind our listeners too, that we're taping this show on Thursday and we air on Friday. So certainly something could happen in the 24 hours that lapses in between, in which case, you know, we'll have that news at the Austin Chronicle. But yeah, this seems as if, as if this has just been a really confusing stretch of time for people who sell Delta 8, people who purchase Delta 8, who are wondering, you know, to use your wonderful coined word, legal-ish, eh? Question mark, question mark. It wasn't always like this, right? I hesitate to use the term happened in the dead of night, but this change in classification as a controlled one substance, making it, as you said, along the lines of cocaine, methamphetamines, heroin. When did that change happen and how were people alerted to it? Yeah. So let's start off with explaining this just a couple weeks ago. So on October 15th, the Department of State Health Services posted a notice on its website that explained, hey guys, Delta 8 is illegal and it has been for about a year. Now, a lot of hemp retailers who sell Delta 8 claim that they were caught off guard by this. So were they informed personally or how did they come to, did they just happen to stumble onto that on the website or... So this website announcement was definitely the first big time that Dishes has turned around and say this. Now, Dishes could argue that, and they did in this lawsuit, in the hearing that happened a few weeks ago about this, that you guys should have been looking at the controlled substance list that's been published since January, and you chose not to. It's not our fault you didn't know it was illegal. But the vendors are like, hey, there was no formal announcement of this. And we've been operating under the assumption that it's been legal for a year. So to walk this back a little bit, about a year ago, Dishes had a hearing for people to object to its classification of Delta-8 as a controlled substance. And so when nobody showed up to that hearing, they were like, okay, well, I guess this is going in our rules and the substance list is going to be published on January 20th of 2021. So that's when officially it became illegal. Now, kind of what this lawsuit operated, like the big argument that the hometown hero who brought the lawsuit was making was that there was not enough notice of this objection hearing. And that's why none of us showed up. Otherwise, we would have. So that's kind of what their big argument was in that lawsuit. And apparently it worked because the judge sided with them and issued the injunction on their behalf. Well, and I thought there was another detail in your story that really struck me. That's why I used the phrase in the dead of the night. You're going to have to help me fill in the blanks here because I've forgotten the names. That instead of updating the language, they used, was it a JPEG that doesn't trigger alerts for this language? Totally. So there was a hemp lobbyist who testified in this injunction hearing a little over a week ago. And he says he regularly searches the Texas Register, which is where all notices of public hearings for all state agencies go. Like it's a law that you have to post notices on that website. So he regularly searches for certain keywords like hemp, tetra, hydra, cannabinoid, other terms along those lines. Although he saw a notice of Commissioner John Hellerstedt's like his objection to the legality of Delta 8, 
he never saw the hearing notice about objections for the public comment. And that's because the actual notice of that objection hearing had only been posted in an image file in the Texas register, which is not text searchable. So when he was searching for those key terms, it did not come up. Now, one of the arguments posed by the state was that, well, if he'd actually read that notice of Hellerstedt's objection, then it would have directed him to the DSHS website where the notice was published there. But I don't know. It's a multi-step process. Sure. <laughs> I guess some people weren't following that and it's like kind of subjective whether or not that is mm-hmm. following the law, I suppose. <laughs> but is the general feeling sort of one that they have not been super transparent or have, have tried to not engage a lot of community conversation about this? I guess the larger question is, does the Texas Department of State Health Services actually have the authority to make this switch? The reclassification, is that within their purview? So, I mean, I certainly thought so, honestly. And that was not even an objection that the lawsuit brought. Like the lawsuit wasn't trying to even argue that like, oh, Commissioner Hellerstedt doesn't have the authority to add Delta-8 to the controlled substance list. However, in the judge's ruling, in her list of reasons why she was deciding to go ahead and grant the injunction, she said that, well, actually, Hellerstedt doesn't have that authority. So, I mean, that caught me by surprise, but I'm not a great legal mind or anything along those lines. <laughs> yeah. So where, where are we in the process now? What are we waiting for? What's the next step? Certainly, the next step is going to be whether or not the state decides to file an appeal against the injunction, which is likely. Then after that, I don't know, maybe a stay will be issued on that injunction. Perhaps not. Perhaps we'll just get another hearing date. Either way, certainly people who vend Delta 8 in Texas are kind of shrugging their shoulders about how long they're going to be in business. (laughs) And it's a big deal. This is a multi-million dollar industry. Some of the hemp industry guys I was talking to say there are maybe about 3,000 stores that sell Delta 8 in the state. So, I mean, there's a lot of people whose livelihoods are definitely at stake with this decision here. Well, and there are also a lot of people who are using it, you know, not just recreationally, but, you know, self-medication. You spoke to some folks at a veterans community center. The Veterans of Foreign War Post. Right. Yeah, those guys, it doesn't really come as any surprise to me that that community is a really big supporter of hemp products. I've been kind of paying attention to the laws around this stuff for the past two or three sessions, the legislative sessions when kind of hemp laws and compassionate use programs have been coming up. And the veterans of foreign war in particular have been big, big advocates of trending toward medical cannabis legalization. So at this veterans of foreign war post up in Leander, they have a vending machine in their post that sells Delta eight tinctures and edibles and things of that sort. So, I mean, They're huge, huge Delta 8 fans. They say that some of their veterans there have been self-medicating using these products to alleviate the symptoms of PTSD and physical pain that they may or may not have obtained when they were in their service. And Mitch Fuller, who's the legislative director for that organization, told me that he would much prefer that his veterans take this kind of product to prescription medications, and he's firsthand witnessed some of the horrible things that can happen with addiction to prescription medications. So 
certainly that community is advocating for Delta 8 staying legal and maybe even expansion of medical cannabis because the compassionate use program as it stands right now is very, very limited. And as these people have told me, very expensive. Well, Morgan, thank you for helping us to unpack, I think, an issue that has been a little daunting for those of us who don't know a ton about hemp products, cannabis, which of course is booming all over the country. So yeah, thanks for joining us and explaining the issue. And we're going to keep watching to see what happens next with it. So happy to talk to you, Kim. Thank you so much. We are going to take a quick break. Don't go anywhere. back to the Austin Chronicle show on Co-op Community Radio. My second guest is one of the most intellectually and artistically curious people that I know. And when he gets excited about something, I tend to get excited too. Wayne Allen Brenner, thank you for joining me. Hey, it's a pleasure, Kimberly Jones. Glad to be back here again. So, Brenner, you wrote this week's cover story about a place called Tiny Minotaur and the installation artist who dreamed it up. So, let's start there. What is this place, this magical place? Uh, it's magical is exactly the right word. The Tiny Minotaur Tavern, the location of which must remain secret, although it's in a really adjacent to downtown Austin neighborhood, the Tiny Minotaur is a fantasy role-playing speakeasy, really. It's a bar, it's a tavern, it's a place where you go to indulge in your fantasy role-playing game experience. And to be clear, this isn't the kind of place that you're just, you know, strolling around the, along the street and you're like, oh, I think I might pop in there. This is a invitation only, capacity capped, immersive experience. Oh, is absolutely. It? Okay. You have to know where it is to find it. And then you have to ha have things set up in advance to be expected. So you're allowed in. And what it is, it's like entering another world because of what Dana Bowerly McKnight, the multimedia artist who created this place, has made it into. Yeah, tell us what she's made it into and what her role is. Well, she's an orc, as if <laughs> you read. Uh, yeah, you anticipated my next question. I don't actually know what an orc is, and I you think I just exposed myself. I have exposed myself as a non-Tolkien person, I think. You've never read any Tolkien stuff? I right? haven't. You haven't seen... Lord of the Rings or uh, The Hobbit or any of that. I might have nodded off stuff. a you, bit. you haven't like grooved at a party while Elijah Wood is doing the DJ gig. I Come on, Kimberly. No, nope, no, nope, I've been sheltered all this okay. time. And Orc is one of the races among the fantasy world. They're usually sturdy warrior type of creatures. If you can imagine, this might be easier, a different sort of a fictional thing. If you can imagine... A Klingon 
from the Star Trek universe in medieval times, that's an orc. That's helpful. Now, now, you know, the people that are really into this sort of thing might want to string me up by my feet because I've suggested that, but that's my take on it. And anyway, so this Dana Bowerly McKnight, who her own real name sounds like she's a Downton Abbey character to me, she has this alter ego, Okta Malkuth, who is an orc, who comes from a imaginary world, a world she's created, very much in the fantasy role-playing game sort of milieu, that is called Karth, a big place of nation-states that are warring, and there's all sorts of intrigues going on. And she has been sort of kicked out of that world and into this one. And now Okta must survive somehow. And what she does is she runs this tavern here in our world which is sort of a link back to Karth. So guests, when they arrive at Tiny Minotaur, it's not just a tavern, it's an experience. They're entering into an ongoing narrative that Dana has built, right? Absolutely. So what's the experience like? What can people expect? Are they making up their own lines? Are they pre-scripted? Are there other characters there that they're interacting with? That is an excellent question. Let's see how well I can cover that answer. It depends, really, is the answer. You get to choose the amount of interaction you want. You can go to Tiny Minotaur without really entering or adding to the backstory. You can just go there with a couple of your, say, D&D playing friends and hang out like you're at a regular tavern that just happens to be part of a fantasy world. Or you can go there and actively engage in adventures like quests or combats with non-player characters. Okta has assembled a whole bunch of characters that come from her world and interact with folks in this world. You know, despite me not knowing what an orc is, and I admit I've never played D&D either, but I am so tickled by the idea of somebody you know, here's my imagination, here's my imaginative space, and I'm going to open that up and invite other people into it and turn it into a a kind of performance art. And I'm curious, do you have, I mean, you're a guy who's been covering all kinds of theater and experimental theater and performance art in this town for many, many years. Do you have any experience with this sort of living theater? It's like, the improvisers in town, comedy improv people, like at Cold Town or, or at The Hideout, who do like themed shows. It's that sort of thing, but if you moved it from the stage into it being actually taking place in this world, and that it just keeps going on and on. Dana slash Okta has four years worth of material that she's working through. Wow. I suspect it's hard to get into this, but I guess if she's going to be doing this for four years, people can probably eventually get on the list. Yeah, it's not that difficult. There's a certain price to it, of course. You are going for an evening at a tavern, and you get your pickles and your bread and whatever grogs and stuff that they serve. So there is that. Other than that, I guess you don't really have to be vetted before you go to this thing, but You're going to want to make a good impression on Okta if you want to show up there and do what you're going to do. Sure. And sort of enter into the experience with the same spirit of the people who are involved in it. 
in your piece, I think I neglected to mention you profiled Dana this week in the Austin Chronicles cover story, fantastic cover by photographer Jana Burcham and our art director, Zeke Barbaro. And she spoke specifically about sort of the creating a safe space and that she was sort of inspired to do this project in the middle of the pandemic, just because everything was so terrible. Exactly. Exactly. It was sort of an escape from the pandemic, just as much as it's an escape from the world itself. This mundane earth that we inhabit, the workaday, everyday kind of doldrums. It's a way to get away from that and into something a bit more exciting, a bit more imaginative, a bit more, as they like to say, fun. Well, let's shift to a different kind of creativity happening in our town right now, which is the Austin Studio Tour, or what is now known as the Austin Studio Tour. The Austin Studio Tour, it's a combination of Big Medium's West Austin Studio Tour and East Austin Studio Tour that they used to do in the before times. Well, now in these times, of course, they decided, hey, maybe the best thing to do is join those together. And so it's three weekends of access, basically. It's access to art. It's access to the artists. So the galleries all over town are doing special promotions and special demonstrations and stuff and they have expanded hours on each of these weekends. But it's not just the galleries, the artists' studios. That's the studio in the, in the title of the thing. You get to go into the artists' studios and talk to the artists, the people that make the works that are so just wonderful to see and amazing to be in the same neighborhood with sometimes. I mean, there are some world-class folks doing amazing stuff in this town. And there's also folks just doing creative stuff that it doesn't matter what world it is. It's just, wow, what a vibrant, thriving community. And this Austin Studio Tour gives you access to it. And it's also, they time it this time of year for a reason when it's absolutely beautiful out. It's a ton of people who are walking from place to place or riding their bikes. Like you said, the access that you have to artists and to be in the spaces where that creativity happens is really kind of unparalleled in this town. So, Britter, do you have any specific recommendations? There are recommendations. I think I've got them in a paper somewhere. You mean a newspaper that is readily available on newsstands all around town? Oh, Austin's long time <laughs> alt-weekly called The Chronicle? Yeah, I think so. There's a picture of an orc on the cover of this issue. But yes, I can also mention a few here on the airwaves. Specifically, a woman who used to be a neighbor of mine back in the day, how odd that is, because Austin is so small, even as it continues to grow ridiculously. Jennifer Balkan, who is a figurative painter, representational realism painter. She's listed in there, as you can see. Her work's are astonishing. If I said earlier world-class, that's one of the people I was thinking of when I used that adjective. And she has been, you know, plying her oil painting realistic portraits of people for a long time and is getting better and better. But also, she's now moved on to something where she's using markers, these fancy art markers and just line work and sort of melding the two. So it's amazing to see her evolution over these years since she's been doing stuff here in town. Who else? Robert Melton. Now, there's a dude. Holy cow. This guy, he's a filmmaker. He's a musician and singer. He 
does all sorts of abstract paintings. And now he has returned to an earlier part of his career where he does these photorealistic graphite drawings of ordinary objects. Like maybe it's a crumpled up piece of paper, or maybe it's a pencil, or maybe it's your grandmother's vase, or some of his earlier stuff as a almost a harking back to the Chronicle's last cover story about forbidden fruit. He's done these lifelike drawings of dildos and stuff. They're astonishing, frankly. And you can go to his studio and see these things on site and talk to the man and wonder at somebody being so damn creative and so good at it in this town. Well, there's two recommendations, and if you want more, you're going to have to pick up this week's copy of the Austin Chronicle. Brenner, thank you so much for joining me. You're welcome. And that is a wrap for another episode of the Austin Chronicle show. Our guests today were Morgan O'Hanlon and Wayne Allen Brenner. The show was engineered by Bob Daly and Andrew Solon, and Kevin Curtin and Jonas Wilson wrote our theme music. I asked Bernard to choose a piece of music to end the episode on, something to tie in with the fantasy role-playing theme. Brenner, what have you chosen for us? Well, citizens, avail your ears of Carl Orff's O Fortuna from his Carmina Burana. We'll see you next week.